The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Now is the time that we take to look to God's Word, the Bible, Scripture, read it, study it together. We believe this is how God speaks to His people, actually the world today through written Scripture, that He has preserved the Old Testament. Uh, the very same Old Testament that the Lord Jesus 2,000 years ago used and taught from, and he considered it absolutely authoritative and binding, and the Word of God. We have the same view of the Old Testament as Jesus himself. Jesus was not just a man. He is God, and he was the God-man, God who became a man. And then he taught his disciples and the crowds and multitudes for three-plus years, and then he asked and commissioned his followers, particularly his apostles, to write down the most important things that he wanted us to know, and that became the New Testament. And so what we literally have are the words of God written down for us, preserved, fixed, universally true, binding, authoritative, the very voice of God. That's the attitude we have when we study the Bible. This is not just uh, ancient, outdated information from some misguided fanatics or feeble, fallen, finite men of 2,000 years ago. No, this is the living word of God. And it's our wonderful privilege to look at it, to talk about and understand and even investigate what is this resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one source to go to when you want to learn about Jesus Christ and his resurrection and the meaning of it. No doubt in the last couple of weeks you've seen talks of Easter, that word which is not in the Bible. It's Resurrection Sunday. That's what it means. I don't know if anybody said Happy Easter to you today. We understand what that means. It's colloquialism. Even unbelievers say that, Happy Easter, and I'm always baffled why an unbeliever says Happy Easter. Uh, There's only one reason to celebrate this day, and it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, sovereign Lord and judge of the universe and every soul. That's why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, which we call Easter. I don't have a problem with the word Easter, but I think it's a great opportunity to Tell people, you know what Easter is really about? Well, I thought I'd do something, uh, take this opportunity to emphasize two truths that are very important that we don't often get to as we usually go through a book of the Bible Sunday by Sunday. But we have a special season upon us. It is Resurrection Sunday. It's seasonal. It comes every year. It coincides with the Old Testament feast that God gave to Moses and the Israelites called Passover. Passover. It was this time of the year, Passover, where... Uh, The Jews were to set aside a perfect, flawless, male lamb, innocent lamb, and kill it, slaughter it, shed its blood on the feast day called Passover, and offer it as a sacrifice to appease the wrath, the anger of a holy God. His wrath and his anger towards what? One thing, and that was sin. Sin and disobedience. And, that, and when they did that in obedience, then God's wrath was appeased by that perfect substitute, that innocent, flawless male lamb whose bones were not to be broken. God commanded Israel to do that 1400 B.C., 1,400 years before Christ was born. And that was intended to be a prophecy, intended to be a living metaphor of something greater yet to come, the greater lamb who would fulfill that picture, that prophecy. 
And that was Jesus Christ. He came as the Lamb of God, the final Lamb of God, the only Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, the eternal Lamb of God, who would do the same thing as a sinless male who literally came down from heaven, took on a human body, was born for one purpose, and that was to die for sinners. Lived for 30 years, began his ministry, and served in his ministry for three and a half years with one purpose, and that was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and call sinners to repentance that they might be saved and have a relationship with their creator based on his substitutionary death. And Jesus came as the Lamb of God, and he died. He gave his life. He was not a helpless victim He allowed people to take his life. That was planned from eternity past. He gave himself on the cross to be crucified as a substitute for sin. And God the Father poured out his wrath on him while he was on the cross. The most excruciating pain at the cross that Jesus experienced in six hours as he hung on the cross on that Friday was not physical pain. But apparently that's what everybody else wants to emphasize out in the world. It was the spiritual pain, the spiritual judgment, the spiritual wrath. The invisible transaction that was a reality when God the Father turned his back for the first time in all eternity on his perfect, flawless, eternal son, Jesus Christ, during the time that he poured out his wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ as a substitute. Because Jesus knew he was dying as a substitute for sin, to be forgiven, because we're all born as sinners. We are all born enemies of God. We are all born children of wrath. There's no way to get right with your creator, the judge of the universe, Unless you go through Jesus Christ, he's the only way. Jesus said that. It's clear. Scripture teaches that consistently. And that's what he came to do, to die that he might provide a way, forgiveness of sin for sinners, so that they can know their creator and their potential judge at the most intimate personal level, a personal relationship with the creator God of the universe. It is only through Jesus Christ. And you don't have to do anything. You can't do anything. I can't do anything. Jesus did it all. It was his work. It was his person that provided it all. So that's the true meaning of Resurrection Sunday that we call Easter. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I wanted to do in light of that, that uh, God gave a gift to the Jewish people with Moses in 1400 B.C. And one of the gifts that he gave them, actually he gave them many gifts. But one was a calendar year with seasons, with feast days, three main feast days that were highlights of their season. So it was seasonal. The year was seasonal. You look forward to certain seasons and even uh, mo- certain months and then days of the week. And God has done the same for Christianity. We have a seasonal calendar, a gift from God. We celebrate the Lord's Day every Sunday. That's a gift from God. This uh, one day out of seven where we stop, reflect, and worship the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, remember what he did on behalf of sinners. And that's Sundays. That's Resurrection Day. That's the first day of the week. That's today. So that's a gift from God, this seasonal way of life. But also Easter or Resurrection Sunday comes around once a year in the springtime, reminding us of what Jesus did and the significance of his death and his resurrection. And So we want to take advantage of that as they did in the Old Testament with their feast days. And So I want to emphasize two things this morning is the nature of resurrection and the implications of what does that mean the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. There are personal implications for all of us. And I want to make sure we understand that. So it is not uncommon to go to an Easter service and hear a little bit about a story of Jesus rising from the dead, which is fine. We need to do that, and then we leave, and we don't get a whole lot more than that. We get the story of the resurrection, but sometimes we don't get the meaning of the resurrection. And I think, more importantly, we don't get the implications of the resurrection. So that's what I want to share with you this morning. 
is the story of the resurrection, but its meaning and also the implications of it on a very personal level. So hopefully you learned something very specific this morning about what does it mean, this resurrection idea that only the Bible teaches, by the way. Uh, So that's a a main truth that I want to lay before us. And the other thing is I want to highlight not just the day that Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, as you see in The Passion of the Christ, that movie that came out years ago. I saw that. I watched it. Why? Because everybody else was watching it and kept asking me questions about it. And being a Catholic of 19 years, it was a thoroughly Catholic movie all over the place. And if you didn't have uh, Catholic doctrine like I did for 19 years, you wouldn't see it. Uh, But it was just clear as a bell. And then the way the movie ended was you don't see the risen Jesus Christ. You see through a little crack in the wall of apparently his thigh, Jesus' thigh, which is to tell you, oh, I think he rose from the dead. And then the movie ends. As though the resurrection of Jesus is the end of the story. When I would say, no, according to the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the story. So what I want to share this morning is the title is He is Risen. But what I want to emphasize is, yes, Jesus rose 2,000 years ago, and then what? Dot, dot, dot. Jesus rose, and then what? Jesus rose, and so now what has he been doing for 2,000 years? What has he been doing, the Lord Jesus Christ? Has he been silent? Sitting on a cloud? Passive doing nothing? Totally insignificant to world history and where it's going? What has he been doing for 2,000 years? And also, in addition to that, is what is Jesus doing right now? Is he doing anything? Does it matter? Is it relevant to my life, whether I'm a Christian or not? Yeah, I think it is. The Bible is clear about that. So not only what did he do 2,000 years ago, and what is he going to do in the future? What is that? Well, that's the culmination and the highlight of human history, according to the Bible. So... It's not just about his resurrection. That begins the story in many ways. So with that, just uh, let me run through some questions for you. Uh, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Love God with your entire being of the way that he made you. But part of that is your intellect, the way you think. We can't just approach religion with our emotions or mystically or with our passions or through experience. That is not adequate. That is not sufficient. That is all subjective. They all have their place. But our religion needs to be pure, and it also needs to be objective. And that's why Jesus said, love God with all of your mind. With correct reason, with correct thinking, correct thoughts. And those thoughts are informed only by Scripture from the Word of God. So here's an opportunity for all of us to go through an exercise uh, to, to think about the truth of God intellectually so that we might love Him even more. Those of you who know Jesus Christ would testify that you love Jesus, he is your Lord, he is your Savior, you love him with a passion, you love him sincerely and deeply. That's true, if you're a Christian. That's what it's all about. We know Jesus and we love him dearly. But as a Christian, we are commanded by God to continue to grow in our faith and understanding of who Jesus is. Nobody here understands who Jesus is perfectly as the God-man. He is infinite. But part of growing in the faith over the course of our Christian life One of the main things that we do to grow and mature in our faith and sanctification is learn more about Jesus Christ. Learn more of what is true about Jesus Christ. Absolutely vital. And so these questions intend to help us along the way. So here we go. I'm just going to run through, get this, a few yes and no questions. And you can just write them down as you go. Just number them. 
Don't say anything out loud. This is just for your own edification, and maybe we all learn something together in the process. And all of these questions are really related to Jesus Christ and resurrection truth according to the Bible. I can't go over all the answers from Scripture, but these are thoroughly biblical. If you want to talk to me later, uh, that would be fantastic. Or shoot me an email. But here we go. Especially for those of you who are Christians, this is just a good review to see what do we know about basic resurrection truth. Number one, these are yes and no questions. Here we go. Is our redemption, as Christians, is our redemption fully complete? Yes or no? Just write it down. Is our redemption, keyword, fully complete? Number two, did Jesus rise from the dead in a different body than he had before he died? Did Jesus rise from the dead in a different body than the physical body he had before he died? Number three, did Jesus have a body before he was born of Mary? Did Jesus have, on a regular basis, a physical body before he was born of Mary into this world? Yes or no? Number four, will Jesus get rid of his physical body in the future, in eternity, at some point? Will Jesus get rid of his physical body? Number five, does Jesus' body right now have blood in it? Assuming that Jesus has a physical body, does Jesus' body right now have blood in it? Number six, does God the Father have a body? Number seven, is our physical body evil right now? Your physical body, my physical body, is your physical body evil, yes or no? Number eight, do Christians that have died, maybe you had a relative that died recently that was a believer. Or maybe it was your great-grandma, and she loved and knew Jesus, and she died. That's who I'm talking about. Do Christians that have died have a resurrection body right now? Number nine, is Jesus the Father? Is Jesus the Father? Number ten, is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? Those are two different questions. Is Jesus the Father and is Jesus God? That trips some people up. Number 11, should we worship Jesus? Number 12, does Jesus have a physical body right now? 13, was Jesus' resurrection body different from his first body? Was Jesus' resurrection body different from his first physical body? That's not the same question as number two, by the way. Number 14, does Jesus' body now have flesh and bones? Flesh and bones right now? 15, is Jesus omnipresent? Meaning he can be anywhere and is anywhere at all times. He's, he's everywhere all at once, the same time. Is Jesus omnipresent? Number 16, did Jesus ascend into heaven in a physical body? In a physical body. Number 17, will unbelievers have physical resurrection bodies? Forever will unbelievers who reject Christ in this life and then they die. They don't know God. They don't know Jesus. They've rejected Jesus. They die. Will they end up with a physical resurrection body forever? Yes or no? Number 18. Will Jesus' return to earth? Will Jesus return to earth in a physical body? Okay, that's it. Did you know that when you came to church today, you were going to have a quiz of 18 questions? And I didn't even give you a chance to study. I'm sorry. It's called a pop quiz. But anyway, if you're grading your uh, questions, one through nine were all no. One through nine were all 
No, the answer was no. That may confuse you on some of those. Well, for example, number one, is our redemption fully complete? Well, I thought Jesus died for all of our sin and it was totally complete. Yeah, that's spiritual forgiveness of sin, but that's not complete redemption. There are things that still have to be done regarding your personal redemption. That's Romans chapter 8. We are waiting, we are groaning, the word groaning, three times in Romans 8. We are groaning in this life. There's a lot to groan about in this life. Thank you. The Bible's very honest. Living this life in a fallen world, we groan as Christians in this life. And the longer you live, the longer and louder you groan. Because this world is not getting better and life isn't getting better at a human level in a fallen world. And because of sin. And so Paul says we are groaning, 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 looking forward to that great day. And that is the complete, key word, redemption of our body. The completion of our salvation. So that's what I meant by is our redemption complete. Jesus did not just die for our soul our invisible soul. He didn't die just for our spirit. He didn't die only to forgive us of our our sin. He died for us as total persons, being physical and spiritual. It is a complete salvation, a complete redemption. And it is incremental. It happens in phases. And Jesus secured legal salvation for us. He died as a substitute. He died to appease the Father. His death literally purchased our salvation. Jesus' death purchased your salvation if you're a Christian. Jesus bought you. He bought your eternal soul with his death and resurrection. He purchased you. That's one of the words in the New Testament. Jesus purchased you with his death. Think about the implications of that. So my salvation is a gift. The fact that Jesus purchased me... He purchased my eternal salvation with his infinitely precious blood by virtue of his substitutionary death and resurrection. Jesus purchased my salvation. He bought it. It's an eternal, infinite salvation. A spiritual salvation. The fact that Jesus purchased my salvation means that I couldn't buy it myself. He bought it. I can't work for it myself, my salvation. He purchased it. I can't lose my salvation. He purchased it for me. I can't boast about my salvation. He purchased it with his own blood. There's so many implications to that great reality that Jesus purchased my salvation with his blood. So if you want to talk about any more of those, um, would love to have that conversation, but all those intersect with, and then uh, the rest of them, 10 through 18, you guessed it, those were all true. Jesus is God. Jesus is the eternal God. Yes, we should worship Jesus. Yes, Jesus is omnipresent. Yes, Jesus has a physical body. Yes, Jesus' body has flesh and bones. His physical, glorified resurrection body is made of flesh and bones. No blood. Flesh and bones. A supernatural, heavenly, glorified flesh and bones that will last for all eternity. Yes, uh, when unbelievers die at some point in the future... At the end of the age, unbelievers who died, who are going to be consigned to hell forever, will be given by God eternal, physical resurrection bodies. They will have a conscious existence in eternal hell with a physical resurrection body. That is clear from Scripture. John chapter 5 and many other places. Revelation 14. Daniel chapter 12. Scripture is clear about that. So those are just... Some, I think, really important truths about the reality of resurrection and the resurrected Lord Jesus. Somehow, 
Uh, Jesus did not have a physical body as eternal God before he was born of Mary. It was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In eternity past, before creation, they were as content as could be within themselves as the triune God of the universe. And then they made creation. They knew and allowed for sin and sent Jesus as the Savior. And Jesus came down from heaven to the earth that he created and for the first time took on a human body through Mary and a virgin birth. He assumed a physical body. He lived for 33 years in that body. He never sinned. He had no sin in that body, yet it was 100% human, yet without sin. And at the same time, he was God and fully man. And then he died as a substitute. He died a physical death. He couldn't die as God. But as a human, he did die. It was a real death. His body literally died, went into the grave. God the Father and Jesus and the Spirit raised his body three days later in a new physical body. It was the same body that he had for 33 years, yet it was a different body in that God glorified it. God reconstituted it at a supernatural level. No longer did it have blood, but now it had glory to sustain it from heaven itself. So the Lord Jesus Christ then ascended in that physical body, and he reigns on high in a physical body still. He will return in a physical body as the God-man, and he will have this physical body that is glorious for all eternity. It is a literal physical body that can be touched by his people. And at the same time, Jesus continues to maintain his deity as God and all of his attributes and is the omniscient and omnipresent savior of the universe. You mean to tell me, Pastor Cliff, that Jesus has a physical body and at the same time he is omnipresent? Yes, absolutely. That's the clear teaching of the Bible. Well, how is that possible? My answer is, I have no idea. That is miraculous. That is awesome. That is amazing. I believe it. It's in the Bible. Jesus resides in heaven at the right hand of the Father, sitting down on the Father's throne of glory and grace, ruling over the sovereign universe in his physical body. And at the same time, the promise of 2 Corinthians 13 and other verses in the Bible, Romans 8, is that if you're a Christian, Jesus lives in you. Literally. By the way, it's not a part of Jesus. All of Jesus, the fullness of who Jesus Christ is, lives in you as a Christian. That is absolutely mind-boggling. It should put us in awe at the feet of God Almighty. Thank you, Lord. Incredible truth. Well, let's go to John chapter 20. Let's just walk through this passage. John's account, John chapter 20, the back of your Bible. John, one of the four Gospels. John was an apostle of Jesus. John wrote this Gospel, oh, wow, 60 years after Jesus died. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other Gospels, had already been written. John, no doubt, was familiar with those three Gospels because John purposely filled in the gaps that were not included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's just a a beautiful complimentary account. But all four Gospels give uh, an account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the day that he rose from the dead. So this is true history. This really happened. It is perfect. It is without flaw. It is not in error whatsoever. It is from God himself. He has preserved this truth. This is exactly how it happened. And this is the only place you can go to find out the truth about Jesus Christ. Last night I'm watching Netflix. Why am I doing that? I don't know. It's a bad habit. (laughs) And there's a commercial on the right. Uh, And it may have been National Geographic or whatever. And it's something you're supposed to watch and click on or whatever. And it said, the search for the historical Jesus, question mark. The search for the, the historical Jesus. And that's been around for 150 years. Uh, So be leery of that. Be aware of that. That's by people who don't believe in the Bible. 
You can just see that in the title. The search for the historical Jesus, implying that, well, the true Jesus hasn't been found yet. That's what they mean. And their answers are not in the Bible. They don't believe in the Bible. But the only place you can go to find out truth about Jesus Christ is in the Bible. That's it. There is no truth anywhere in the world in existence that is true about Jesus Christ outside of the Bible. Well, what about Josephus? I knew you were going to ask that question. (laughs) And Tacitus and blah, blah, blah. Well, I challenge you, go read it. Josephus, what did he do? He stole it from the Gospel of Mark. And it's very little. It's just a couple verses. Josephus got his information about Jesus from the Bible. So the Bible is the only place we can go. So let's go to John chapter 20. This is written by John the Apostle himself, who was a relative of Jesus, who was the best friend of Jesus, who was probably, who knows, maybe even raised up with Jesus and his family, was a formal apostle, sent one, one of the 12 for three and a half years with Jesus, actually won the inner circle of the top three apostles that Jesus confided in, an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, all of his words, commissioned by Jesus Christ personally to write down the truth of God's word, wrote five books in the New Testament, the gospel, the book of Revelation, and then first, second, and third John. And he's not just writing as a human eyewitness who's truthful and reliable and full of integrity. That is true. He is being guided supernaturally by the spirit of God to write down every word that God wants written down in the Bible. So it's selective information, but it is life-changing selective information. You want to become a Christian? If you're not, the only way you can become a Christian is by reading the Word of God and hearing about Jesus Christ. It's the only way. You've got to hear the good news, the good news about Jesus Christ. So here's what happened. We saw on Good Friday a couple of days ago the key word, the tetelestai. That was the Greek word Jesus cried out, tetelestai, it is finished. It is finished when he was on the cross. It is finished. He knew the will of God. It is finished. Meaning mission accomplished. Meaning I came to live the perfect life, fulfill the law, and die on behalf of sinners and absorb the wrath of Almighty God. Mission accomplished. Tetelestai. That's what he meant. But really it was just beginning. He secured eternal spiritual salvation and forgiveness of sin. But then the full redemption would still play out in history. So he was buried on Friday, and then he rose again. This is the first day of the week, Sunday morning. Let's look at it. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, the first day of the week, this is when believers, the church, started meeting. They were meeting on Sabbath in the Old Testament up to this time. Jesus was even celebrating the Sabbath Saturday as a Jew. But with the resurrection, there's a new day, a new dawning. Because Scripture has been fulfilled. So on the first day of the week. Sunday, it becomes Resurrection Sunday. That's why we meet on Sunday for church, to be with God's people and celebrate the resurrection of Christ. This is the pattern of the New Testament. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. The other three Gospels tell us she was with a couple other ladies. Mary Magdalene. Luke 8 tells us that Mary Magdalene was at one point not saved, even though she was at one time probably growing up as a a sincere Jew, but then she got demon-possessed. Jesus probably cast out those demons from her. There were as many as eight demons that were inside of her, seven or eight demons. She was demon-possessed. Got saved, fell in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and began to follow him and minister to his needs from the time she got saved after being a demon-possessed woman. She was completely faithful, loyal. The apostles 
for the most part, except for John, scattered at the time of Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. And there's Mary Magdalene with the other women, faithfully staying near Jesus, totally loyal. And here she is the first day of the week. She's the first one to the tomb on Sunday morning. She expects to find uh, the tomb closed with the stone rolled over it and Jesus' dead body inside the tomb because she's coming with oils to anoint his dead body out of reverence for him. She's not expecting him to be risen from the dead. So this is uh, Mary Magdalene. All four Gospels tell us that Mary Magdalene was the first one at the tomb and the first eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus of his disciples, Mary Magdalene. So Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, and while it was still dark, early in the morning, she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. She was surprised. Wow, the stone. I was worried about the stone. How would we remove the stone? But the stone is already gone. It got removed. How did it get removed? Supernaturally. There was an earthquake, and then God sent angels, and they are powerful, and God removed the stone. And the stone was removed not so that Mary could go in, but Jesus could get out. Verse 2, so she ran and came to Simon Peter. So, she, so there's Mary. She goes, she looks, and all she sees from a distance is the stone is missing. And so uh, she's in a panic. She doesn't know he's risen from the dead. And so what does she do? She turns around and runs to find the 11 apostles, wherever they are, starting with Peter. He was the head apostle. Keeping in mind, they are now in Jerusalem because it's feast time. It's Passover. Peter doesn't live in Jerusalem. He doesn't live in Judah. He lives way up north in Galilee. He's not home. And that's true of the other 11 apostles or 10 apostles. They are, they're not home. They're, they're staying in a guest house, in a back shack somewhere, in some room, in a rental place with relatives. They're not in their house. So wherever they're huddled and hiding, the apostles, because they were, they were scared. She knew where they were, so she ran back and came to Simon Peter and said to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. So she went and found the apostles. At a minimum, she found Peter, the head apostle, and the other apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who's that? That's John the apostle. The disciple whom Jesus loved. John the apostle wrote his gospel, and every time he refers to himself, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He wasn't being arrogant. He was identifying with the personal love that he had with Jesus Christ, the Savior. He also didn't want to be arrogant and use his first name. So she ran and found Simon Peter and John the Apostle, and she said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him, whoever they are. Uh, Tomb robbers? Who knows? She doesn't think he's risen from the dead. That hasn't even crossed her mind. His body is missing. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple, John, went forth. So Peter and John, they get up with minimal information, and they start running to the tomb, running. And they were going to the tomb, verse 4, and then the two were running together, and the other disciple, that's John the apostle, ran faster than Peter. I love the details. Who would know that? John the apostle. An eyewitness. This isn't hearsay. John the Apostle, they're running together, and then John the Apostle runs faster than Peter. And he got to the tomb first. And then John gets to the tomb, and it says, and then stooping and looking in. The literal Greek word is he peeked in. He did not go into the tomb. He saw the stone removed, got up, was very cautious, and then all he did was look in, peeked his head in there, and then pulled it out. Didn't even go in. 
Stooping and looking in, he saw the, and what did he see? He saw the linen linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. So there were linen wrappings. These were his, the grave clothes of Jesus are laying there in the tomb and Jesus' body is gone. And there are long linens that covered the body. There's a separate linen that wrapped around his head that's in a separate pile and neatly folded, which is odd. It's odd that Jesus' linens are there because that means he doesn't have clothes on apparently. They stripped him naked and then they're in two different piles and the head linen is neatly folded like somebody knew what they were doing, purpose they were doing, taking their time. Very strange. Verse 6, and so Simon Peter, so, and then Peter's coming, taking up the, the behind, behind John, running as fast as he can, and then instead of stopping, following John the apostle, Peter entered the tomb. So he just bolts right in, no stop, no caution, that's Peter. There could have been a black bear in there for all we know. Peter doesn't care. So he just bolts in, goes right in, coast is clear. Okay, John's like, okay, thank you, Peter. So when Simon Peter enters the tomb, he saw the linen weapons lying there. And get this, verse 7, and the face cloth, which had been in on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up, really folded in a place by itself. What does this tell us? This tells us that the shroud of Turin did not belong to Jesus because of the separate head wrapping. So don't believe that malarkey, baloney, hogwash, whatever you want to call it. The Bible will set you free with its details. Verse 8. So the other disciple, John the Apostle, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered and he saw. So finally, so John comes in and he saw, and here's a key phrase, and he believed. What? Wait, I thought John was, had already believed. Didn't he follow Jesus for three plus years? Was he not the only apostle sitting at the foot of Jesus Christ at the the crucifixion? Fearless of death and the enemies of Christ? What does it mean that he believed? Well, it tells us, he tells us, he gives us information. Uh, For as yet, they, the apostles, didn't quite fully understand the scriptures, the scriptures teaching that the Messiah must rise again from the dead. Was John, as a Jew who grew up in the synagogue, familiar with resurrection truth? Yes, generally. He knew Daniel chapter 12. He knew other verses. He knew the book of Job. He knew Psalm 16. He knew Hosea 6.3. He knew Isaiah 55. He knew Isaiah 53. He knew Psalm 22. But it was shouted. It was clouded, shrouded. It was unclear. God needed to give fuller information as to the details of it and how it applied to the Messiah. He wasn't looking for a Messiah that would get killed. He was looking for a Messiah who would be king and conquer the Romans right then and there. And even during the ministry of Jesus Christ, Jesus began his ministry three and a half years prior to this event, the resurrection event. And in John chapter 2, the first miracle, Jesus turns water into wine. Then he goes into the temple publicly and clears the temple in front of everybody. And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Kill me, and I will raise myself from the dead in three days. 
Well, when he said that three and a half years earlier, his apostles didn't know what he was talking about. They were thinking the literal temple. And then even six months before Jesus died, Jesus told his apostles, okay, guys, we're leaving Nazareth. We're going to go down to Jerusalem because I need to go down there because I will be betrayed. I will be arrested. I will be falsely accused. And then I will be put on trial. And then I will be killed. And I will rise again from the dead. All they heard was that he was going to get killed. And they just panicked. And they didn't know what that meant. But he did say, and I will rise again from the dead. So this is what John believed. This is called illumination. The Spirit of God helped John the Apostle take all that information that he had prior to this, put it all together, and the light went on spiritually. And he had, for the first time, full understanding of the resurrection of his blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. What is the evidence? A body, physical? No, it's the empty tomb. He has risen just as he said. So John already believed in Jesus, but this brings him to a a fuller salvation in terms of his knowledge of knowing the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what it means, he believed. He believed. John chapter 2, verse 22 says, what did he believe? He believed the scripture and the words of Jesus. That is powerful. How did he get saved? He believed the words of scripture. That's how you get saved. You can't be saved apart from scripture and the truth of the Bible. It's got to be scripture. And that beautiful phrase, he he believed scripture and the word of Jesus. What is scripture? It is the word of of Jesus. Who is Jesus? God. What is scripture? What is the Bible? It is the word of God. The very word of God. What the Bible says, God says. And you're hearing it today. Whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not, you are now accountable for the truth of almighty God of the universe. Not only is he your creator, he is also your judge. And information always carries with it accountability. There won't be any excuses before the throne of God. You either believe in Jesus Christ or you reject him. And John believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Actually, they didn't go to their own homes because they didn't live in Jerusalem. And your Greek text there in verse 10, just minor note, it doesn't say home. Home is a clear word. Oikos is the word for house or home. That is not the word. Oh, this is just a personal pronoun. Literally, it's where do they go? Well, they went away with themselves. Peter and John, they didn't go home. Their home was in Galilee. They didn't go home. They went away with themselves. So you can make a note in your Bible. It's not home. He didn't go home. Literally, they went away with themselves. What does that mean? Wherever the apostles were hiding out. In some dark, secret, locked room. Fear of their lives. That's where they went. Back near Jerusalem. It wasn't their house. The only English Bible I saw that got it right was the Legacy Bible. That's the new one. Kudos for the Legacy on that. It says they went where? To where they were staying. That's a good translation. They they went to where they were staying, not their home. If you you keep home there, it's just going to confuse you because, like, in terms of the geography, even though it's a small detail. So they left. They didn't see Jesus, Peter and John. They left. Then look, all of a sudden, Mary's back on the scene. So Mary goes back. She gets Peter and John. And then she comes back to the the tomb. She is persistent. But Mary was standing outside the tomb from a distance. And what was she doing? She was weeping. Why? Because uh, she thinks somebody stole Jesus' body. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. So same word. She peeked in. She didn't go in. She peeked in just like John the Apostle did. What did she see? Verse 12. Well, she saw two angels in white. 
sitting. One at the head and one at the feet. Two angels. Angels from heaven. Good angels. Angels from Almighty God. They were in human form. They looked like men. According to the other gospel accounts. But they were angels. They're in the tomb. They're witnesses of the resurrection. They were used by God in the resurrection. They were sitting there where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said, the angels talked to her, at least one of them did. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. He's my Lord. Very personal, isn't it? Do you ever say things like, my Jesus? I've, I've talked to Christians who think, that's, oh, that's too personal, I can't do that, I feel guilty. Can I, can I say I love Jesus, or he's my Jesus? Can I say he's my Savior? Isn't that kind of selfish and self-centered? He says, my Lord. My Lord. My Jesus, I love thee. John, uh, Paul does the same thing in Galatians. My Lord, my Jesus, my Savior. Very personal. It's your best friend, if you know him. So she, the angels are talking to, and so and the fullness of her understanding isn't complete yet because she doesn't know that Jesus has risen from the dead. She thinks his body has been stolen. When she, um, then she tells the angels, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. She saw Jesus. So he wasn't a phantom. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. It was a human personage. And it was Jesus. His identity was intact. It's the same Jesus. It's the same body. It's a different body. It's the same body. It's a transformed body. It's the same body. It's a glorified body. It's the same body that was initially a temporal, physical dying body on the human side. And now God, the Father, has transformed that body and made it a glorious resurrection, eternal body that will last Forever, But yet, it is still a physical body, and it retains the identity of Jesus Christ. And that's true of you and me in the next life. Eventually, when we get our resurrection body, your identity will be preserved. Everybody doesn't look the same in heaven. You'll have a distinct identity in heaven in your resurrection body eventually. And by the way, it will be perfect. Maybe some of you that think you've seen a perfect you in this life, you haven't. But you will someday. That's clear from Scripture and the doctrine of resurrection. So she sees Jesus standing there, except we don't know why she doesn't recognize him. Uh, probably because she's so distraught and upset. She's full of tears, and maybe her eyes are blurry, or maybe Jesus was kind of shielding and hiding his true identity, as he did with the two men on the road to a Mason in Luke 24. That's very possible. But the fact of the matter is she saw Jesus standing there, but didn't know that it was Jesus, didn't recognize him. Verse 15, and Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. So she thought he was the gardener there at the tomb. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She still doesn't believe that he's risen from the dead. And then finally Jesus unveils the truth, verse 16. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Personal name, got her attention. She turned around fully and said to him in actually Aramaic is what it should be, Rabboni. Not Rabbi. Rabboni, it's a different term, and it's actually a greater term of respect and reverence. It means teacher. Jesus was the master teacher, the teacher of one thing, and that is the word of God, of biblical truth. 
So Mary recognizes that it's Jesus. And not only did she turn around and say, Rabboni, we know that she probably about tackled him over and clung her arms around probably his feet, maybe clenching her fingernails into his ankles, if that's possible to do to a resurrection body. How do we know that? Because of what Jesus says. Verse 17, Jesus literally said, stop clinging to me. Literally, let go of me. That's what it means. It's a beautiful picture. When I get to heaven someday, will I be able to be with Jesus and see Jesus in the midst of the billions of other people that will be there? I think so. Will I be able to touch Jesus someday in his resurrection physical body? I think so. Isn't that an awesome thought? That's what she was doing. She did not hold back. No inhibitions. This is true worship. Clinging the feet of the Savior. Stop clinging. And he wasn't saying it in a, a mean way. It's, it was a practical way. I've got a mission. I've got a plan the Father's given me. I've got an agenda. I've got to make appearances. I've got to go to uh, Galilee and make resurrection appearances. And I've got 40 days. And wow, you're holding me back, ma'am. But I've got a mission for you. Verse 17, Jesus said, We're stop clinging to me. Let go of me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but he will. After 40 days. and But do this, Mary. Go to my brethren, the apostles, by the way, who are still cowering in fear and unbelief. We know that because of the other gospels. They still didn't believe. Except John the apostle to the extent that he could because he saw an empty tomb. But some, those other apostles that haven't seen don't believe yet. We know Thomas didn't. Go and tell my brethren, that's the apostles, say to them, I ascend to my father and your father... That's beautiful. I ascend to my father and your father. Throughout the gospels during his earthly ministry, most of the time, Jesus would say, my father. My father, my father, my father. Did not uh, hardly ever say your father. He couldn't have, especially if it was the 12 apostles, because there's Judas, demon-possessed Judas, was not from the father. But it was the believing remaining apostles that were left. And so this is true. My father and your father. My God and your God. Jesus is God and yet has a unique relationship with the father who also is God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples. So she, in obedience, she goes back to the apostles and she comes announcing, proclaiming at the top of her lungs, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. I've seen Jesus. And that he had said these things to her. They were still doubting. Verse 19. So when it was evening on that same day. This is resurrection Easter Sunday. In the evening now. After these morning events transpired. Mary as far as we know is the only one that has seen the risen Lord. It's still the first day of the week in the evening. When the doors were shut. Locked. Where the disciples were the apostles. Why? For fear of the Jews. What were they doing? They were hiding. They were hiding. Fear of their life. Even though Jesus said in John 14 through 16, he said, okay, hold on. I'm leaving. I'm departing. Then they began to panic and freak out. And they didn't hear all the good stuff that he said. Yeah, I'm leaving, but it's temporarily. Like in chapter 16, there's a, a verse there where he says, I'm leaving for a little while, but then I will return in a little while. I don't think they heard that. And he said a little while. I'm leaving for a little while. Okay, that's when I die and get crucified and I'm buried for three days. But then I'll be back in a little while. That's I'm going to rise again from the dead and be back with you. They didn't get it. 
They're hiding in fear. The doors are locked so no one can get in. That's the point. And then all of a sudden, instantaneously, Jesus came and stood in their midst, even though the door was locked. That is miraculous. Jesus now has a, a physical body, but it's a supernatural, heavenly resurrection body that can appear and disappear at random, and it will. And I believe that's also true of your future and my future resurrection body someday. It can defy uh, the dimensions of our physical, temporal world in which we currently live. It's amazing. And that's what Jesus did. Just, boom, suddenly appeared, which had to have been frightening. Jesus came and stood in the midst behind locked doors. And because it was frightening and he could have scared them to death, the first thing he says is, Shalom, halakam. Shalom, peace, peace. They've heard that before from the Lord Jesus. Probably very soothing to hear his voice. Shalom, halakam, peace I say to you. He says it three times here. So they don't die of shock, fear. Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The implication is he still has the scars. He has a perfect, glorified, eternally lasting resurrection body without any flaws whatsoever. But the scars in his hands and in his side still remain. Why is that? Well, that was God's sovereign choice to do that. But maybe, as here, is evidence. It's me. I'm risen from the dead. It's the same Jesus. But I'm a glorified Jesus now. Maybe it's evidence. I died for you. Maybe it's an eternal reminder for sinners in heaven. How'd you get here? By my death. As they say, the only man-made thing that exists in heaven forever are the marks on Jesus' hands and in his side. So he gives them the evidence. Peace be with you. It's me. It's the same Jesus. Showed them his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced. Notice they went from fear to joy just like that. You know, God's the only one that can do that. A personal relationship with Jesus Christ is the only thing that can change a person from abject fear to instant joy on the inside. Only Jesus can do that. That's the promise of God. When you become born again, when you become a Christian, 2 Corinthians 5 says you become a new creature. Old things pass away. All Behold, all things are new. What's that talking about? It's talking about a, rene- a regeneration and renovation on the inside of your new spirit. You now know God. You used to be a child of Satan. Now you're a child of Almighty God. You used to be a pawn in the world, and now you have the Spirit of God living in you. The Spirit of God, eternal Spirit, who created this world, who's infinite, who's of God Himself. The Spirit of God living in you, producing these attitudes and this fruit of the Spirit called peace and joy. And Jesus told him in John 14 when he was leaving, yes, I'm leaving, but I won't leave you as orphans, but I leave you peace, my peace I give to you. Only Christians know that kind of peace and joy. If you're not a Christian, you don't, you don't have the capacity or ability to know what true peace is or true joy. You'll have a superficial happiness that's fleeting and doesn't last, and it doesn't go into the deepest recesses of your soul because you've rejected Christ. But a believer who accepts the Lord Jesus Christ, embraces his Savior, they are born again, regenerated. They get the Spirit of God living in them, and it's just a flood of the Holy Spirit producing these new attitudes and fruits of the Spirit deep within your soul you never had before that you cannot produce on your own. They can't be produced by circumstances in your life, materialism that you save up. It's a gift of God, and that's what he gave them here. They go from fear to joy. 
seeing their Savior. So Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also am sending you. This is the Great Commission. Now go tell the world. Tell them this mission. Tell them I'm risen from the dead. Tell them I'm the only Savior. Tell them I fulfilled the Scriptures. Tell them more is coming. Tell them that it's only through me that true peace and true joy and forgiveness of sins is even possible. Tell them that I died and rose again. That you've seen the scars on my hand and in my side. And so he commissioned them as witnesses. This is evidence. You read through this passage, the evidence is mounting for the validation of the truth of Christianity and what Jesus said. Why do I believe in Christianity? I believe in Christianity because of the evidence. Because of the evidence. There was the evidence of the empty tomb. There was the evidence of the eyewitnesses of the apostles that that saw him, that he appeared to, that he commissioned, that he talked to. There's all kinds of evidence. It's just completely absurd for people to say there's no evidence. It's all over the place. And you're accountable for it. So... He sends them, verse 21, and then verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on the apostles and said to them, and this was symbolic, he breathed on them, the breath. This is the same Greek word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of Genesis 2, 7, when God created the first man, Adam, and breathed into him the breath of life. This is supernatural. And what Jesus is doing is basically he's empowering the apostles for ministry because they're going to turn the world upside down. They're going to go from these really timid cowards, cowering in a dark room, hiding away from God somewhere, and have now been transformed with the power and the commissioning of the risen Lord Jesus, and now are going to go turn Jerusalem and the world upside down, courageously, fearlessly, even giving their lives. Total transformation. Only Jesus can do that. Receive the Holy Spirit, verse 23. If you forgive sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them, and if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. What is that? that that's actually the promise of the gospel. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the content of the gospel. If you go, and it doesn't matter who you're talking to, how sinful, wicked, evil their past is, when you give them the gospel about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did, and you call them to repentance, and they understand it and they mean it, then their sins are forgiven. All of their sins, past, present, future, and then they are transferred into the kingdom of Almighty God. That's what that means. This is the the authoritative saving message that God has entrusted, get this, to the church, which means every Christian. Every Christian is a conduit of this message. You are, I am, everywhere we go. We have the authority of heaven itself. And it's not our own authority, it's the authority in the message itself about Jesus Christ. You believe in the gospel, your sins are washed away, totally forgiven. You reject it, your sins are remain. They are retained, it says. You're accountable for your sins. The wages of sin is death. Physical death, future death, spiritual death, and eternal death in hell. There's only one thing that keeps people out of heaven, and that's unforgiven sin. There's only one thing that sends people to hell. That's unforgiven sin. There's only one way to get your sins forgiven. It is through believing 
Jesus Christ, who he is in his gospel, bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, crying out to him as Lord, pounding on your chest, recognizing your sin that separates you from the God of the universe, the creator and your future judge, crying out to Jesus, Lord Jesus, forgive me, the sinner. Thank you for dying in my behalf. Thank you for absorbing the wrath of almighty God on my behalf. Thank you for being the perfect substitute. There's nothing I can do to save myself. You did it all. I cry out to you, save me, Lord Jesus. That's the message. That's the good news. That's what changes lives. I know there are, most of you this morning probably know the Lord Jesus. He is your friend. He is your savior. But no doubt in a crowd this size, there are people who don't know Jesus Christ personally. That is a fearful thing. But you've heard the truth from the Bible. And now you're accountable for it. Not only are you accountable for it, I hope it brought you some clarity in your thinking. And now it's the job of the Holy Spirit to bring more clarity to your thinking so that you have the right thoughts about God, who you are, and your relationship to Him. And that if you don't know Him, that can change eternally today. What a glorious prospect of getting saved on Resurrection Sunday. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's go to the Father in prayer. And thank Him for His his living word that He's preserved for us, the truth of Jesus Christ, who reigns on high over all, even now, in a physical resurrection body, And as believers, we look forward to the prospect of his return, literally to this earth, to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we do thank you for this day, the special season of the year that it is that we call Easter and Resurrection Sunday, and a privilege we have to be reminded of your word, the meaning of Resurrection Sunday, of your resurrection. Thank you for purchasing eternal life for sinners. Thank you for the promise of a future glorious resurrection body that will have no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrows, no more cursed earth. The prospect is just beyond imagination. Anything that we could even possibly imagine or think, but it's true. And may that be our motivation, our desire, what allows us to persevere from one hour to the next, one day to the next, one week to the next in a fallen, difficult world in life. And our hope is only in you. We thank you so much. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.